This episode discusses adult subject matter, including descriptions of sexual abuse of a child, and is intended for adult consumption only. Listener discretion is advised. If you have been affected by sexual violence, free, confidential support is available 24-7 through RAIN's National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-4673 and online.rain.org. It's Saturday, February 23rd, 1957. Snow beats down on the quiet streets of Coatbridge, Scotland. The roofs of the cozy houses that line the streets are now blanketed in white, and townspeople trod cautiously down the icy paths. Through the storm, the pointed red and white striped hat of a child can be seen bobbing and weaving through the drifts. It belongs to Moira Anderson, one of Coatbridge's most beloved residents. At 11 years old, Moira is known as a tomboy, preferring to shoot marbles with the boys than skip rope and play with dolls. On warmer days, she can be seen hauling a heavy cart filled with milk bottles through the streets, one of the many ways the industrious young girl makes pocket money. But today, she isn't working or playing. She's headed with a determined gait to her grandmother's house. Her gran has the flu, and Moira's mother asked her to check and see if she needs anything. Afterwards, she plans to go see the movie Guys and Dolls with her cousins. When she arrives, cheeks and nose rosy from the cold, Moira is greeted by her uncle Jim, a bachelor who lives at her grandmother's house. He tells her to run to the local co-op to get some butter. The small store is just yards away from her grandmother's house. And if she hurries, she can get there before it closes at 4.15 p.m. It's a simple favor, one that he doesn't hesitate to ask of the child. She's gone to the co-op on her own countless times, and even with the nasty weather, he's not worried for a second. But this seemingly innocuous request will haunt him for the rest of his life. The moment Moira walks out the door and into the blinding whiteness of the snowstorm, a horrific series of events are set into motion. Events that will reverberate throughout the next five decades, shaking the town of Coatbridge to its core. As the afternoon wears on with no sign of Moira, her uncle begins to grow angry. She said she'd go straight to the shop and back. He's sure that she's off dawdling somewhere, playing in the snow. When Moira's cousins arrive to pick her up for the movies, he tells them as much. But a seed of doubt creeps in. Moira was so excited to go to the movies, insistent that she be back from the shop in time to walk with her cousins. What could possibly be keeping her? Moira's cousins soon get tired of waiting and head to the cinema hoping to spot her in the line, but don't see her. Straining their eyes in the packed, darkened theater, they look for her straight blonde bob poking out atop a seat, but she's not there either. After the film, they head home, confused but unworried. That is until after dinner, when Moira's father, Andrew Anderson, knocks on their door hoping to find his daughter with them. Horrified at the news that Moira hadn't been seen since leaving her grandmother's house, he heads home to break the news to his wife, Marjorie. After a few more hours of waiting for their daughter to turn up, tail between her legs from losing track of time while playing in the snow, Andrew Anderson makes his way to the police station. 
It's a little after midnight when police finally receive word that Moira is missing. They're not overly worried. After all, Coatbridge is a safe town, the type of place where residents don't bother locking their doors. She must be hiding somewhere, playing a trick on her parents. Or perhaps she went exploring in the cinema and got locked in a closet by accident. In any case, there is not much that can be done right now. The snow is still falling heavily outside and the roads are essentially closed. They'll have to wait until tomorrow to start the search. The next day, Sunday, February 24th, the managers of every cinema in the area are called at their homes. Typically, these men would be on their way to the local church along with the vast majority of the community. But fearing Moira might be trapped in a broom closet or a projection booth, they make an exception scouring every nook and cranny of their movie theaters. She is nowhere to be found. The police then turn their attention to Moira's other favorite hangouts. The library, where she's known to spend hours devouring all manner of books, is opened and searched. Again, no sign of the young girl. The owner of the co-op where Moira was sent to buy butter swears that the little girl never came into the shop that evening. When searches of relatives and friends' homes also amount to nothing, the chilling truth becomes clear. Moira Anderson has vanished without a trace. Some policemen believe that she's simply run off, but her mother knows better. Moira is a kind, loving child who is close with her family. I know Moira has been taken away against her will, Marjorie will later say. She would never speak to strangers. Everybody knew her. She was such a tomboy, so full of fun and life, she wouldn't go willingly. Communication on Moira's disappearance is slow to spread. The local paper runs no story on the case the day after the first search, and it's not until Tuesday, February 26th, that a full spread covering the disappearance is featured. Moira's toothy grin and shining eyes stare out from the front page along with an illustrated map of the route she was said to have taken from her grandmother's to the co-op. In the article, the reporter speculates, something made Moira change her mind about shopping. Now, the question on everyone's mind is what? What would make an 11-year-old girl, with exciting plans that afternoon, deviate from her path during a blizzard? The answer to this critical question won't come until much later. Decades from now, when not one, but two men begin confessing on their deathbed. At the moment of death, People often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Alexander Gartshore, of the words he spoke before he died. It's the story, too, of another man, Jim Gallagher and the explosive confession he wrote while dying in a prison cell. It's about the picturesque town of Coatbridge, a tight-knit community in the Scottish Monklands, and the one snowy night in 1957 that made them start locking their doors. It's about family secrets and suspicion, a murdered little girl and the 50-year hunt for her killer. I'm Estefania Haikman, and this 
is Deathbed Confessions. Here and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence playoff crowds are going wild, playoff players are lighting up the court, even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. In the weeks following the initial search for Moira, the police did not uncover any new leads. February turns to March, and as crocuses begin peeking their colorful blooms out of the thawing ground, hope that the young girl will be found alive fades. Volunteers scour abandoned buildings, sheds, back alleys, and bins, but nothing, not even an article of clothing, is found. Still, Moira's mother holds out hope. She buys her the Monopoly set she wanted for her upcoming 12th birthday on March 31st, also Mother's Day that year. But Moira never turns up to collect her gift. As the months plot on, the local police failed to make any real headway. No official reconstruction of Moira's actions on February 23rd is made, and bafflingly, they do not go door-to-door asking for information or possible sightings. The police chief makes an appeal to the public, believing, perhaps naively, that witnesses will simply come forward. All in all, the Coatbridge PD seems to project a lack of urgency. One former officer remembers a colleague dismissing the case, saying, Oh, the lassie's likely had a row with her mammy and went off. She'll turn up soon enough. The only local suspect that is ever seriously considered by police is an intellectually disabled man named Ian Simpson. Simpson's sister, coincidentally, lives just a couple doors down from the co-op that Moira was headed to on that fateful snowy night. He could have snatched her up on her way into the store and disposed of her undetected. After all, the streets were virtually empty that evening due to the storm. But after some digging, the police found that Simpson has a rock-solid alibi. He had been away training with the Army Reserves that weekend. The residents' faith in their local police begins to falter due to their inability to catch Moira's abductor. They feel unprotected, vulnerable to the nefarious force that was able to creep undetected into their lives. Children, once given free reign of the streets, are told to come home straight after school and never to play out late without permission. They walk in twos and are picked up by their parents who begin escorting them to their extracurricular activities. 
Tales of a boogeyman spread through whispers on playgrounds. A monster who snatches children and takes them to his lair. Little do they know that a real-life monster has been in their midst the whole time. In the form of Alexander Gartshore. On the outside, Alexander Gartshore appears to be the ideal patriarch. After fighting bravely in the Second World War, he married his wife Mary, and at 36 years old, now has three beautiful children. Every Sunday, Alexander's handsome, six-foot-four frame can be seen towering above the pews in the local church. His steady job at the local bus service, Baxter's Buses, provides well for his growing family, and unlike other men, he doesn't squander his wages at the local pub. He's staunchly sober, refusing to risk his bus driving license for a night out with the boys. But appearances can be deceiving, and behind closed doors, the Gartshore family live with a dark, unspoken secret, one that his eight-year-old daughter Sandra knows all too well. Ever since she could remember, Sandra's relationship with her father had been fraught. For reasons she couldn't fully comprehend, around the age of five, she stopped trusting him, stopped wanting him to hug and kiss her, stopped wanting to be alone in a room with him. Not long after, Alexander's behavior toward her became increasingly violent. It started small. For no apparent reason, he started to burn her legs and arms with his scalding hot teaspoon. This quickly escalated as his instrument of punishment became a brass buckled belt, which he would use to savagely beat Sandra on the backs of her legs and buttocks. Alexander's abuse was not just physical, however. He also psychologically tortured Sandra by making her witness his sexual perversions. From a young age, Sandra began noticing that her father's behavior with women was odd. He would often play a disturbing game with them when no one else was around that he called beardy, which consisted of pinning women down and groping them. At the time, Sandra's young mind couldn't comprehend it, but watching her father act this way made her feel instinctually uncomfortable. She'd look on, embarrassed and frightened, not knowing what to do. She knew, of course, that she could never tell her mother. It would break her heart. And plus, Mary Gartshore idealized her husband. While she didn't know about his sick game, she was well aware that Alexander was frequently unfaithful. There are worse things than fancying women, she'd say while listing her husband's redeemable qualities. By this point, Sandra had gotten used to keeping secrets from her mother. Once, while snooping through her parents' closet for Christmas presents, she stumbled across a stack of disturbing pornography carefully hidden away. Far from the grinning lingerie-clad beauties in Playboy or Hustler, the pages of these magazines were filled with pictures of women in wartime concentration camps and horrific torture scenes. Terrified, she put them back exactly as she found them and never spoke of them again for fear of being punished or called a liar. But Sandra's hand was forced when her father's attention turned from adult women to her friends. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. 
okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. In 1956, just one year before Moira's disappearance, Alexander Gartshore purchased a car. The children of Coatbridge quickly began requesting to go for rides around town with Sandra and her daddy. Personal vehicles were rare, and riding in one was seen as a treat. At first, Sandra felt special for all the new friends the car brought her. Soon, however, she began to dread these rides. Alexander would drive her and her friends all under the age of nine to a secluded area of a park by the locks of Coatbridge. Once there, he would make some excuse for Sandra to get out of the car. On one of the first occasions, he gave her money to buy ice cream from a nearby truck. Upon returning, Sandra found the windows of the car all fogged up, and peering through, she saw her friend's clothing scattered across the floor. As time went on, Alexander became less discreet, openly molesting Sandra's friends in front of her. Finally, Sandra's friends sheepishly came to her door and told her they weren't allowed to play with her anymore. Faces streaked with tears as they explained, we're just not to, and we're not allowed to say why. Heartbroken, Sandra went to her mother. She told her that daddy acted funny with her and her friends, but was ignored. Oh, he's just playing with you all, Mary said dismissively. At this point, you may be wondering why the parents of Sandra's friends did not report Alexander Gartshore to the police. Moving forward, it's important to remember that the approach to sexual assault and pedophilia was very different in the 1950s to what it is today. As Sandra, who now goes by the last name Brown, explains in her book, Where There Is Evil, children were kept completely ignorant of sexual matters. Conversations about what to do if someone touched them inappropriately or exposed themselves were simply not had. Usually, if a child did tell their parents or relatives about inappropriate behavior, the family would choose to deal with it privately due to the shameful stigma attached. As a result, Alexander Gartshore was able to act with impunity, allegedly molesting dozens of children as young as two years old for years. In late 1956, however, the law finally caught up with him. A few weeks before Christmas in 1956, just two months before Moira Anderson goes missing, Alexander is arrested for raping the Gartshore's 13-year-old babysitter, Betty. Betty is the much younger sister of Jim Gallagher, one of Alexander's colleagues at Baxter's Buses, and the only victim so far to pursue legal action. It finally appears that Alexander's reign of terror is coming to an end, but in early January 1957, he is released on bail and allowed to return home while awaiting his trial. During his absence, the Gartshores fell on hard times and ended up in dire financial straits having lost their sole breadwinner. So Alexander's father persuades Baxter's buses to allow him to have his job back before his sentencing in the spring. Astonishingly, they agree. Just days after Alexander is formally charged with having carnal knowledge of a minor and other offenses of a sexual nature, he resumes his post driving the Cliftonville bus, a route which passes right in front of Moira Anderson's door, a route he was confirmed to be working at the very same time the young girl disappeared. <laughs> 
You would think that surely one of the police's first stops the day after Moira's disappearance would be to Alexander Garchor's house. Not only was he one of the few people confirmed to be on the roads that night, but he was out on bail for raping a minor not much older than Moira. Inexplicably, however, officers never came knocking. Still, Alexander assures his family that he went to the police station voluntarily and was cleared of any connection to the case. A little over a month after Moira's disappearance, he leaves Coatbridge for his trial. In April, he's sentenced to 18 months in prison. During his incarceration, the investigation falters. With no evidence, no leads, and no suspects, Moira Anderson's disappearance quickly becomes a cold case. The town of Coatbridge moves on, and as the years roll by, the shadow cast by that dark, snowy night in 1957 diminishes. It seemed the tragedy would soon be forgotten to time, and that very well may have been the case, if not for the efforts of one person in the decades to come. Alexander Gartshord's daughter, Sandra. It's February 7th, 1992. In the decades since Alexander's incarceration, Sandra has flourished. She cut her abusive father out of her life shortly after her mother divorced him in 1965, and in spite of extreme financial hardship, went to college and got a degree in teaching. She now has a high-ranking job at a school in the suburbs of Edinburgh and is married to the love of her life, Ronnie Brown. Together, they have two beautiful children. Today, however, she will be forced to confront the past. Her paternal grandmother, Jenny, has died, and after years spent avoiding her hometown, Sandra is once again in Coatbridge. It's been nearly 35 years to the day since Moira's disappearance, but the town hasn't changed all that much. In fact, the snow covering the ground makes it look almost identical to that fateful evening all those years ago. Sandra drives to pick up her mother and bring her to her late grandmother's house. There are a few things they need to arrange before the funeral, and the rest of the family is slowly gathering there. She's dreaded the idea of her father showing up, and when her mother gets in the car, her worst fears are confirmed. By the way, I think you should know that your father's here at Grand's, the old woman says. For years, Sandra has thought about finally confronting her father about his arrest and his history of sexual abuse. It's a daunting and frightening prospect, but today she believes she's finally ready. When they arrive at Grandma Jenny's home, Sandra is instantly confronted with the sight of her now 71-year-old father. He is still a tall, imposing figure, but time has weathered his face and his once dark hair has turned white. Alexander smiles at her awkwardly, perhaps hoping for some form of reconciliation. Instead, Sandra tells him tersely that she'd like to have a word with him in private. Together, they go into a spare room and sit on a bed. The tension is palpable. Years of pain and suffering, all caused by the old man now sitting just inches away from her. When Sandra begins to speak, it's as though a dam inside her has burst. Everything comes pouring out. Doing her best to keep calm, she confronts him on the years of abuse, the horrible things he made her witness, and his constant infidelity towards her mother. When she's finished, Alexander, rather than owning up to his crimes, plays the victim, claiming he was never given a true shot at redemption after his incarceration. Not everyone forgave me and let me start again, he protests, 
Your grand forgave me, your ma'am, but my father never did. Sandra is taken aback by this. As far as she knew, her paternal grandfather had been an advocate for Alexander, getting him his job back at Baxter's after he made bail and garnering support for him within the community while he was imprisoned. What hadn't he forgiven him for? After a few minutes of pressing, Alexander finally relents. He wouldn't forgive me for the Moira Anderson thing. Sandra sits in stunned silence. Finally, she manages to ask why in the world her grandfather suspected that he was connected to the disappearance. Alexander has told his family for years that the police cleared him of any connection to the case, and he'd sworn up and down that he never knew the young girl and certainly had not come across her the night she went missing. Alexander stares out the window at the falling snow, his mind perhaps drifting back to that evening all those years ago. I told him I had nothing to do with her, but I was the driver of the bus the day she went missing. I told Grandpa I didn't even know her, but she got on my bus in all the snow. I was the last person to see her. After the funeral, Sandra drives back to Edinburgh, her father's words ringing in her ear. Suddenly, it all makes so much sense. Her father, a convicted rapist and known pedophile, admitted to being the last person to see Moira Anderson alive. Of course he must be involved. The next few months are a blur. Sandra's mind is filled with questions. Certainly, if he had indeed gone to the police to make a statement, they would have made this information public. Or did Alexander not tell investigators the full truth? Finally, after speaking with her therapist and weighing the options, Sandra makes the brave decision to contact the police. A few days later, two plainclothes officers show up at her door to take a statement. They carry with them a large box labeled Moira Anderson Inquiry, 1957. Detective Inspector Jim McEwen begins to speak. What I can tell you categorically before we take a statement, Sandra, is that we have combed through the original investigation files which you see here and there is absolutely no trace of Alexander Gartshore ever being interviewed at that time or later. No trace. Detective McEwen is baffled by this, as the files contain multiple witness statements confirming that Moira Anderson was indeed spotted on the local bus service on the evening of February 23, 1957. For some reason, the police at the time had chosen not to follow up on any of these leads. But why? Why hadn't the police thought it necessary to interview Alexander Gartshore, the driver of the bus that passed right in front of Moira's home? The only answer that Sandra and the officers can think of is that he had friends within the force. Indeed, Baxter's buses had a policy that police officers could ride for free. In exchange, they tended to look the other way when drivers got into any legal trouble. It's possible that police did not want to drag the company or Alexander into the investigation for this reason. Furthermore, Alexander was a member of the local Freemasons Lodge, one that Sandra finds out later was composed of about 90% police officers. The officers on the force at the time of Moira's disappearance are long since retired, however, and there is no one left to protect Alexander Garchor from what comes next. After months of gathering statements from Alexander's victims and potential witnesses, 
the police finally have enough evidence to bring him in for questioning. They track him to his home in Leeds and interview him on the 17th and the 18th of March, 1993. During the sessions, Alexander confirms that everything he told Sandra was true. Moira Anderson had boarded his bus the night of her disappearance, and he had been the last person to see her alive. Initially, he swears he did not speak to her, but after some pressing, changes his story. Moira, apparently, had a secret plan that she revealed only to him. Upon boarding, Moira told Alexander that she was going to Woolworths to buy her mother a surprise birthday card. Police are able to confirm by looking at Marjorie Anderson's headstone that her birthday was indeed February 24th, the day after Moira went missing. Alexander is telling the truth. How else could he possibly remember the birth date of Moira's mother after three decades? He goes on to explain that he dropped Moira off at Woolworths, which would have been an unofficial stop, and waved goodbye to her. He then continued to work until 11.45 p.m. and stopped off for fish and chips before heading home. But something about the way Alexander reacts to Moira's photo makes Detective McEwen believe there's more to the story. Upon seeing the young girl's smiling face, Alexander cries out, Moira! and begins to shake. The old man looks haunted, as though he's been waiting for this moment of reckoning for the past three decades. Detective McEwen leaves the interrogation certain they have their man. Meanwhile, Sandra is dealing with considerable pressure from some of her relatives. The story of her father's connection to the Moira Anderson case has now broken in the press, and many members of her family are livid that Sandra has made the issue public. You should have ignored what your dad said. He's your own flesh and blood, no matter what he's done. He'll be an old and confused man by now, one female relative tells her. Listen, you wee bitch from hell, what about your mammy? This'll kill her as God's my judge. But other family members are more forthcoming. Her aunt reveals during a telephone conversation that Alexander's father had indeed always been deeply suspicious of him. When he heard that his son was driving the bus the night Moira disappeared, he drove to confront him. Brandishing a crowbar, he began lifting up the floorboards in the kitchen and then searched the entire home from top to bottom. Finding nothing, the old man put his head in his hands and cried, You're in enough trouble as it is. God knows I don't want further shame brought on our family's good name, but I'm convinced you're involved in this. You tell the police where you put the wee lassie, Alex. Sandra also speaks to her six female cousins and discovers that at least five of them were molested by her father. After some convincing, they agree to make statements to the police. During a separate police interview with Alexander, he admits on tape to molesting one cousin and alludes to molesting another. Finally, investigators have enough evidence to arrest Alexander Gartshore on May 18, 1993, on suspicion of the murder of Moira Anderson. While Alexander's in jail, the Crown Office begin reviewing the charges which include the molestation of Sandra's cousins. Sandra and Detective McEwen have high hopes that he will finally be brought to trial. But in late July of 1993, they receive a heartbreaking letter. While the Crown Office encourages detectives to continue investigating, 
they rule that no further proceedings will take place. Alexander Gartshore is released on bail shortly after this ruling. Sandra and Detective McEwen are stunned. How could they possibly ignore all the new evidence they'd spent over a year obtaining? A local representative tells them, there is no murder without a body. The Moira Anderson case is still officially a missing persons case, pure and simple. He goes on to explain that murder investigations where no body is found rarely go to trial. And in the one or two instances that it happened, there was at least some physical evidence to go on. The evidence that Detective McEwen sent to the Crown Office, consisting almost entirely of witness testimony, was overwhelmingly circumstantial. The representative concludes by saying, I know your father has said some extremely incriminating and suspicious things, but they have not enlightened us. In my view, the police aren't much further forward than they were in 1957. If investigators want to close the case after all these years, they have to begin searching for Moira Anderson's remains in earnest. The town of Coatbridge, unfortunately, is littered with places where one could easily dispose of a body. Abandoned mines sneak beneath its streets, along with seemingly fathomless shafts and deep locks and ponds in the surrounding marshland. At the time of Moira's disappearance, the Monkland Canal, which the original investigation chose not to dredge during the search, ran straight through town. If Alexander had stashed Moira's body in any of these places, it would be exceedingly hard to find, especially given that three decades had passed since the event. Nevertheless, in the fall of 1993, and again in February 1994, Detective McEwen sends divers to a local pond where the investigation believes Gartshore was likely to have disposed of the remains. Nothing is found. With no body, no physical evidence, no confession, and no hope of the case going to trial, the police are forced to abandon the investigation. Sandra is dismayed that her father's case never went to court, but remains undeterred. In 1998, she publishes her book, Where There is Evil, and uses the proceeds to launch the Moira Anderson Foundation, which offers individual care and support to survivors of childhood sexual abuse and their families. She continues to pursue any and all leads in the Moira Anderson case, and in 2003, gets her biggest break yet. Alexander's colleague from Baxter's Buses, Jim Gallagher, had made a deathbed confession. And what it contains is explosive. If you'll recall, Jim Gallagher was the older brother of Betty, the babysitter who Alexander was convicted of raping back in 1957. Strangely, he was also Alexander's friend, and Sandra remembers him frequently coming over to the house. In 1997, Gallagher was convicted of molesting a child and sentenced to 10 years imprisonment. While serving his time, he fell ill with Parkinson's disease and stomach cancer. Knowing the end was near, and with hands too shaky to write on his own, he allegedly dictated a confession to a fellow inmate with the request that it be released after his death. The 15-page document divulges that on the night of February 23, 1957, Alexander Gartshore drove Moira and his bus to Baxter's Garage Depot in Airdrie. Once there, 
he beckoned Galligly and another unnamed male colleague aboard. All three men proceeded to assault Moira. All the while, the young girl fought back as hard as she could, so Alexander decided to knock her out, dipping her own underwear in chloroform and placing them over her head. Moira fell unconscious. After the three men were finished, they noticed Moira was completely unresponsive. They tried slapping her, rubbing her wrists, and shaking her, but the young girl wouldn't stir. Panicked, Gartshore and his accomplices stashed Moira in the trunk of the bus, not knowing if she was alive or dead. They left her there overnight in freezing temperatures as snow piled up outside. When they returned the next day, they found Moira's lifeless, frozen body in the trunk. Knowing they couldn't leave her there, Alexander, Gallagher, and the unnamed accomplice took the body to Terry Burn, a large stream that flows from Witchwood Pond and Coatbridge. It's the mention of this name that convinces Sandra the confession is legitimate. The Terry Burn is known almost exclusively to Coatbridge locals and cannot be found on many maps. Interestingly, divers had searched Witchwood Pond back in 1993, but neglected the Terry Burn. Gallagher's confession, which in spite of several petitions, has never been released, also purportedly speaks of a pedophile ring around Coatbridge that included judges, senior advocates, police officers, and notorious pedophile and serial killer Fred West. In the 1960s, West lived in Coatbridge and was married to his first wife, Rena Costello. Costello was a ticket taker for Baxter's buses, thus linking West indirectly to Gallagher and Alexander. Could Alexander have evaded prosecution all these years because he was being protected by a high-ranking network of pedophiles in the Coatbridge area? Sandra believes it's possible. Apparently, the prisoner who transcribed Gallagher's deathbed confession wrote to the Scottish Crown Office five times, and each time they refused to take his statement. Were they trying to keep the whole thing under wraps? Sandra calls Moira's sister Janet to fill her in. The two women had gotten to know each other during the investigation and often speak over the phone. With this new evidence, they believe that surely now the investigation into Moira's murder will be reopened and Alexander will be called in for questioning. Sandra brings the information to the procurator fiscal, a type of public prosecutor in Scotland who investigates all sudden and suspicious deaths. He promises to have the Terry Burn checked out. Meanwhile, Janet petitions for Alexander to be brought in for an interview with the police. Eight long months pass before Janet and Sandra hear back. The news they receive is devastating. The police have decided not to call Alexander in for questioning, saying that they found no grounds to pursue the case further. Once again, their dreams of justice have been dashed. Now, everything hinges on an outright confession from Alexander. It's March 24th, 2005. After a long, arduous drive from Scotland, Sandra's car slowly pulls up to St. James Hospital in Leeds. Two days prior, she'd received word that her father, now 83, is dying. Walking into the hospital's pristine corridor, she knows that this is it her final chance to get Alexander to admit to the abduction and murder of Moira Anderson. A nurse directs her to his room. She takes a deep breath 
switches on the dictaphone she's brought along, and enters. There he sits. The man who was once a figure of terror for her and countless others, now looking frail and helpless in his hospital bed. Sandra begins to cry. Dad, you know I am here. The old man nods solemnly. Initially, Alexander denies any involvement in Moira Anderson's disappearance, but as the conversation wears on, appears to change his position. This is between you and me, she presses. You don't have long. I want you to go and rest in peace. I want to pray for your soul. Sandra tells him that Gallagher confessed. She assures him that given what little time he has left, he would not go to court or face jail time. Sandra produces a photo of Moira and the old man begins to shake. The folks who served the prison sentence were Moira's mom and dad. They never knew what happened to her. At this point, Alexander breaks down, sobbing into his pillow. Sandra hands him a tissue and asks if he's glad to get it off his chest. He nods vigorously. He looks at the photo, eyes misting over, and says, She's haunted me my whole life. It's strange, Sandra says, how you've spent all this time trying to forget her, and I've spent more than a decade trying to make sure she's not forgotten. But you know why, Dad. You know why. I do, but you cannot change the past, Alexander replies, visibly shaken. I regret everything to do with that kid. Sandra leaves the hospital disappointed. Her father had alluded to being involved in Moira's disappearance, but not admitted to it outright. He also didn't divulge any information about where her body might be located or give any statements that directly corroborated Jim Gallagher's alleged deathbed confession. He dies in 2006, having never gone to trial for the murder of Moira Anderson. Nevertheless, Sandra and Moira's sister Janet make a vow to never give up. In the years following her final visit with her father, Sandra relentlessly campaigns for Moira's case to be upgraded from a missing persons to a murder investigation. Finally, in 2012, it becomes one of the first cases to be reviewed by the newly established Cold Case Unit. Since that time, the investigation into Moira Anderson's murder has had several breakthroughs, thanks in large part to the renewed public interest generated by Sandra's book. More credible witnesses have come forward claiming to have seen Moira on Alexander's bus the night she disappeared. These developments led the Scottish Crown to issue a statement in 2014, asserting that had he still been alive, Alexander Gartshore would have been indicted for the abduction and murder of Moira Anderson. Searches for her remains have been carried out in various areas surrounding Coatbridge as recently as 2017. So far, nothing has been recovered, but Sandra continues to hold out hope that soon they will be able to put Moira's bones to rest. In the meantime, the Moira Anderson Foundation continues its vital work providing a place of safety and support for children and adults who have been affected by childhood sexual abuse. Moira's name, once associated with tragedy, is now a beacon of hope and recovery for survivors, a rallying cry for justice. For more information on the murder of Moira Anderson, amongst the many sources we used, we found Where There Is Evil, 
by Sandra Brown, particularly helpful to our research. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet Mark Chopper Reed, a larger-than-life character who made a living from terrorizing and stealing from fellow criminals. He served over 20 years in prison, but one thing the police were never able to pin on him was murder, despite being a suspect in 19 killings. Reed was a natural storyteller who loved an audience, but some stories he kept until weeks before his death. And Ever the Showman insisted on sharing his most shocking confessions in the most public of ways, on national television. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Addison Nugent. Supervising editor Ben Bishop. Sound design by Matias Torresole. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. 